Welcome back to the Queen's School Chester podcast, the place where we talk to staff, to parents and to pupils about topics that are relevant to you. Now, in this episode, we're talking to Head of Teaching and Learning, Jack Sheldrake. Jack's going to be giving out some handy tips and advice for students preparing for their exams, some of the positive ways they can revise and learn some great techniques they can try. But Jack will also talk a little bit about diet, exercise and sleep and what parents can do to encourage and support healthy and stress-free exam preparation. That's all coming up in this episode, so come with me now as we dive into the world of revision with Jack Sheldrake. Jack, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good. My wife and myself and my three children book, booked against the Peak District for uh, a couple of nights yesterday, so I'm feeling really excited. <laughs> oh, good, good. So when is it you're going then? In about a month's time. We've got a little break from school, so in, in about a month's time, so I'm really looking forward to it. So spending time together, this sort of thing. Awesome. Have you been to the Peak District before? No, no, I haven't. So, um, yeah, she says it's really nice. So I'm looking forward to go, but going. But the main thing is, uh, it's just, to be honest, it's spending time with them. So I've got three children, two in the sixth form and one in primary school. So it's just, it's just nice wherever we go to just see them and spend time with them. Gosh, so two in the sixth form. So I'm going to guess, unless they're twins, one in lower sixth, one in upper sixth, or are they twins? No, they're not twins. Yeah, that's right. I've got uh, a daughter in year 12 and a son in year 13. And yes, yeah, so so it's been really useful actually being being in education because I've been able to support them at home mm. with their with their learning and you know and especially my my son he, he calls himself Jack Version Two Point mm-hmm. because he wants to go and do theoretical physics at university. So yes, yeah, so so you know it's just great to spend time with them and, and be together as a family. Awesome, great fun. Okay, so we're going to talk about your your role as head of teaching and learning at uh, at the school, but I'd love to understand a bit more about where you went to school. And what your own experience of school life was like when you were young? Okay, mine was uh, was unusual actually. So, I went to four different secondary schools. So my education was a little bit disrupted. Uh, I went to two all boys schools and two mixed schools, and this was because of uh, you know parents moving house, uh, one school closure, and and so on. So so it was a little bit disrupted, but it, you know it it taught me because what happens is when you move schools frequently, uh, you learn about the fact that all schools although they might do the same courses they don't teach them in the same way so that and they're not taught in the same linear fashion so you might find you've just done fractions in maths in one school you get to the next school they're doing fractions in maths and you miss out on something you know quadratic equations or whatever it is so so you have to learn to be quite resilient and, and learn to identify and overcome these challenges but it really really served me well I think I developed a lot of skills during that time because of that I remember I remember joining a school and having a maths test the same day uh, in a topic I'd never done before and having to learn it at lunchtime and I just and then I did re- you know well in the test and that was it's just I learned that how to learn and given you know this it's, just, it's minimal disruption but you know it's it, it obviously must have impacted to some extent but but yeah fo- following secondary school obviously university to do physics and where did you go to university to do, to do that my first degree was a physics degree in Hull University and then I did a master's in Liverpool University and then obviously once I became a teacher I've then done a doctorate in education so to really understand formally how we learn and so on. So then tell me how did you end up at Queen's? Well I was I was in a different school I was I was in I was in a school it was actually the Times Education the TES the Times Education Supplement it was the school of the year uh, and I was 
so it's an advanced skills teacher there and an SLE, a specialist leader in education there. So we did, we worked with other schools, supporting them and so on. And I decided in order to be better at my job, I wanted to better understand the research. So what happens as a teacher is you're bombarded with research and I wanted to know how do I differentiate between good research and bad research mm. if it's going to inform my practice. Mm. So I began a doctorate in education at Chester and so, which was a little bit of a travel, uh, you know, a, a, a drive. So I started this doctorate in education and it was right, it, the Queen's School is literally, it's a, it's a tiny walk, it's a five minute walk to the university. And one of my friends worked here and she said it's a fantastic place to work. Unfortunately, a, a job came up here and I applied for it and I was very lucky to get it. And you know what, I've not looked back. It's a fantastic, it is a fantastic place place to work. Yeah, I, I honestly enjoy every single day. People probably just say that, but I genuinely enjoy every day coming to work. I was smiling while, while you were saying that you were very lucky to get the job. It's, it's, it's a very classic British thing to say, isn't it? That you're lucky to get the job. But actually, there was merit involved and I'm sure the job went to the, to, went to the right person who applied in the best possible way. So I think you should take more credit for that. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the students for a second because lots of students have got mock exams or entrance assessments coming up. What would be your top tips for preparing so they can do the best that they can possibly do? Okay, so... So I'll, I'll go in. The first thing I would have to prioritise, it's very straightforward, it's very simple, but it's sleeping. And I know this sounds really obvious to people, but it really is. It underpins everything you're doing. Sleeping, diet, exercise, you know. And I know, again, another simple one is a, a place to learn. So so growing up, for example, I was one of a large number of children. And one time there were seven or seven children, seven of us living in the same house. And it's essential that students have a place where they can learn a place where they can organize themselves where they where their work is and so on that's the sort of they underpin everything else if you haven't been sleeping if you haven't been eating properly and exercising you haven't got a place where you can learn the rest of it just won't happen but once you've once you've sorted out all those things you need to be really really clear what it is you're trying to learn what you're trying to revise be very clear on that plan early so it's essentially they plan what it is they need to learn and plan, go backwards and you know think, what do I need to do now to be at this point by then and so on. So planning early is really important. The big thing students do is they revise things that they feel comfortable with. So for example, if, if they were doing, say, maths and they were good at fractions, they have a tendency to maybe revise fractions because it gives you this sense of well-being. You mm. feel good about yourself because you're revising something you're good at. So when you're preparing for exams, you actually should be doing things which are challenging for you you should surround yourself by the right people so peers uh, children that peers have a greater influence on them than the adults in their lives so it's important that they surround themselves with like-minded individuals who also want to you know to succeed in exams and so on they should ask for help as well we're interdependent you know people so we need to ask for help and and that actually promotes learning it's, it's a good thing to ask for help the big ones, though, the big one, I'm gonna, I'll say the no-nos first. I'll do. I'll probably do the, the good things later on. But the, the no-nos would definitely be phones, right? Phones needs to be, so you, you allocate your time when you're preparing for your exams and get that phone away. The reasons are, for example, it impacts your sleep. It gives you a warped sense of reality. It, it gives them a sense, you know, FOMO, you've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out. 
Now, all of this, what it does is it diminishes their cognitive ability when they're revising. This is really well known. It's called cognitive load theory. It's very, very well known. So the, the act of having the phone there diminishes your concentration by at least 20%. So it's Gosh. just, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, get the phone out the room. Other things, you know, some people think cramming's a good idea. Again, nonsense. It's really bad for you. Some people look at photographs of notes they took. That's nonsense as well. You have to in- actively engage with material mm-hmm. if you're going to learn it. And and also, n- no music. So I know that's, that's really contentious. But unless you're doing a creative subject, mm. the, the research again suggests that revising with music, what happens is part of your part of your brain, if you like, focuses on the beat of the music and it's detrimental to most subjects so again it's unpopular but no music i would advocate but yeah the the things that they need to to not do if you like and also uh, i would say you know when you do sit down and you learn about how not to procrastinate and you and you do actually do it properly which I, i will go into later you should reward yourself you know when you do these when you do work hard and you do the right things with eurovision and so on you should reward yourself you know, I did that when I did all my learning, when I did it, when I did my doctorates and everything. So I'd reward myself. So, you know, going for a walk or whatever it was or or use their phone after they've done their work. Because if they if they develop these effective learning habits now, the students, they will be with them for the rest of their lives. And no one knows what the future's got in, you know, in store for these young people. But those skills will make them, you know, be able to respond to a dynamic working environment. So it's important that they that they know how not to learn. But uh, but I'll probably go through in a moment all the ways that, uh, that they should be organising their learning so that they can learn effectively. Awesome. Jack, there's so much content in there. I wish we had literally Sorry. sort of two hours to, <laughs> to unpack all of that. You know, going right back to the start of your answer when you're talking about sleeping and diet and exercise, I mean, just those three things on their own. I, I think parents know that, but sometimes it's hard to... If I say enforce, that's probably the wrong word, but to encourage their children to actively participate in the right quantities of sleep to mind their diets and to actually go out and take some exercise. Just looking at those three things very briefly, what could a parent do, in your opinion, to try to encourage their children to engage in these things uh, more actively? With sleep, diet and exercise and Mm. those things, well, often what will happen is with a student, it depends upon obviously every pupil is is an individual but many, if they are sort of really, really anxious about learning and they're, or they're really conscientious about learning, you might find that they they can be quite belligerent and they can be quite forceful in believing they know what's best for them. And this will include not having rest breaks. This will mean that they think staying up late is a good idea and that they will not exercise because the time is better spent in their minds on learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will, because they're working so hard, their diet will suffer because they're just grabbing snacks Hmm. and I think as an adult because the adults we have responsibility for the children in our care so I think the best thing we can do is just know that these young people need us and they need an adult to tell that to help them and guide them Hmm. that actually no we understand what you're going through here we understand the pressure you're feeling and therefore you know just reinforce and these messages are coming from school they're coming from the tv and parents can be confident that what they're saying and doing is right mm. that you know help them for example rest breaks when people are revising you know encourage them take those rest breaks factor them in you know we're going to walk the dog if you do an hour of maths we'll go and walk the dog or we'll we'll go to a cafe and have a hot chocolate or whatever it is 
I think I think parental involvement is imperative to make sure that these these young people are guided as to the, what's the healthiest way for them. Right. So let's look at some of the positive ways then that children and young people can learn and revise for entrance exams and mock mock, mock, mock exams and things like that. What sort of techniques could they employ in order to? get the right learning behind them i mean you mentioned about things like you know do an hour of math revision and then go and walk the dog what other things can children yes. and parents be doing yes well I, I actually shouldn't have said an hour to be honest with you i should have said because it's there's a, you chunk your learning time uh, sort of dependent upon your age so as you're getting a little bit older so as you're approaching the sixth form for example you might be doing a 25 minute chunk or half an hour chunk before having a small break when you're a little bit younger so in key stage three that would be a slightly smaller amount of time before you'd have a little break but the techniques that there are this is something which i which i i find really unfortunate about schools the students here are 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 fortunate because we guide them in this but in my experience in the past schools have been very good at delivering content to students or even developing skills but what what seems to lack in the majority of schools i've experienced is nobody tells the students how to learn how does their brain work in order to make sense of the content how can they almost hijack their brain because if you take it back to the individual student really high levels of anxiety you know can happen because students are panicking about exams and actually if you show them like i, I referred to before the things not to do now she said well this, these are the things you should do instead because they're based on real science and understanding how the brain works so for example when we talk about the amount of time well there, there are sort of six things we would go through so one would be spaced practice and that's where you space out your studying over time so this is this idea this this whole notion of spending several hours in one day say you were doing I, i'm a physicist so say a student said to me oh i've done seven hours of physics yesterday isn't that great well i'll be thinking well not really because your retention will be very low because those seven hours, if they were spread out over two weeks, that'd be much more effective. It's just, it's just the way our brains work. So, spaced practice—that's called—or concrete examples. So this is where, say, again, in uh, you could do this in physics or biology or maths. It's where you make the you sort of make the abstract more concrete. So these are just different tools that we use. So, for example, a simple one would be teaching fractions using cake. So they can see the concrete example of an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Or in physics, it would be electrons and energy levels in atoms and holes in the ground. So, so there's different ways we can sort of hijack the brain to make our learning more effective. Other ones, dual coding, which is where we're using combining words and visuals. All of these things, what they all have in common as well is they always encourage, well, they always force the student to to actually engage with the learning. So for example, with dual coding, you might go through a passage of text, but then you've got to convert that into an image, into a diagram, into a chart, because what students have a tendency to do is to highlight or reread notes. Well, this is really, this this requires no cognitive effort. And the analogy I always use is, I can't speak a word of Mandarin, but if if I had a set of Mandarin notes, I could highlight them, I could reread them, I could copy them out, but there's no learning taking place. Mm. It doesn't mean I can speak Mandarin. In order to understand something, you need to take that information and apply it in a different context. And dual coding is quite good for that. Interleaving is good. Interleaving is where, rather than revising, say, quantum physics, quantum physics, quantum physics, quantum physics, they would do quantum physics, then they might look at, say, electricity, then they might look at gravity. So they, they interleave what they learn. 
other things, elaboration, and that's that's where they, they they try to extend their knowledge to the wider world and other and their lived experiences and retrieval practice is is, is my main one. So the, the most important one to me is uh, retrieval practice. It's called. We're quite good at taking in information, but we've got to practice pulling that out again when it's needed in an exam mm. context. So you know you know because this this is what they're going to have to do. So tests, for example, tests. I know that I know they're unpleasant. But making students test themselves or use flashcards or, um, you know, constructing mind maps or whatever it is. Because what that does, this why it's really powerful is this. So if I was trying to learn, say, uh, say I was trying to learn 10 words in Mandarin, which I can't do. So if I learned those 10 words, retrieval practice would force me, say, using flashcards, for example. What it would do is a, a, an anxious student, there's 10 words, they've learned the 10, they 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 pull it out in this sort of assessment or this flashcard or test, whatever it is, and it turns out they've got eight right. Hmm. Well, that means there's only two that they can't do. So because I'm trying to encourage our pupils to work in a smart manner, what we're saying is, well, those eight things now, you know those, so you don't think about those things again. Hmm. It's just the two things you can't do, so you just focus on that. So you're working hmm. smarter, so you're putting your cognitive effort on the things that you can't do. And it will be cognitively challenging, it will be, it will make you more tired it's because it's cognitive effort mm. uh, but it's not this it's not simply rereading these comfort things that we all all humans have a tendency to do things which feel comfortable to them mm. but they are less impactful you need to do things which actually require you to think the best thing about this is when the students do it and then they've experienced success because it leads to success it really does they experience the success they get the confidence and they understand this is an effective tool, this works. Mm. And it didn't take me, you know, 10 hours. It took me a, a sensible amount of time. And all of a sudden I've experienced all the success. And then that sort of builds and builds. So eventually the students sort of demonstrate these ideas and show them the principles, but then their experience makes them continue uh, on that path. So, mm. so yeah, yeah, they, they, we use things that actually are you know, proven psychologically to, to work. So it sounds to me like then the one of the techniques you're recommending or promoting is the idea of learning something and then testing yourself. But just a quick question on that. Yes. If you learn something and then tested yourself, say, I don't know, a year later, there's a good chance that that's too late to test yourself. But equally, yes. if you learn something and then tested yourself 25 seconds later, arguably that's too soon. You know, you haven't had a chance to absorb it properly yet. If that's the case, then is there a sweet spot where you should be testing yourself Yes, so when we teach that, that one I used before, spaced practice, where we said space studying out over time, there's something called the forgetting curve. So I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's if, you, if you're presented with a new piece of information, it's not going to go into your longer term memory because you've, it, it's sort of like an exponential curve, it falls off. Mm. Uh, and what you need to do then is revisit that learning. Um, so initially, you'd say revisit that learning in the next, in the next few days. But then you would say after that, and again, it's just about recalling it. And after that, you would do it in maybe a month. And then you would do it in a couple of months. And what you're doing is every time the curve, the forgetting curve comes down, it's quite difficult to picture it in this context, but when it comes down, when you revisit the learning, it doesn't fall down as low on the following when it goes down again. And then when you revisit it, so the forgetting curve ends up where obviously eventually you just remember it. So that's that's how we forget things. And it's, and it, it's part of, we have... We have to, as humans, we have to forget things because we'd have all this obsolete information, wouldn't we? So mm -hmm. it's 
if it's not used, you know, and, and when you think about it, it with neurons and you think about schemas and so on in our minds, it's understandable that we would forget things. But 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 that by doing that, and again, it's using science, it's using understanding of the forgetting curve and then applying space practice to make sure that they, students and adults when we learn, are exposed to the material at the right time. On that though, it's, it's quite interesting actually because when we, when we show students how to revise, Obviously, we make we teach them about space practice and we make these rules explicit. But something uh, which we do, and maybe we should reflect more on this, as adults, because we know this, we guide this. And sometimes I think maybe the students are not aware that sort of a month after they've done something, we intentionally then ask them about it mm. in the middle of a totally different topic. But actually, it's because does that make sense? So yes, yeah, so as a physicist, you might teach say gravity. And they, they finish gravity, they do a little assessment on gravity, they, they analyse that and see, you know, fill all the gaps so they're happy with gravity. A month later, you might be doing light. And then suddenly in their light assessment, they're still getting questions on gravity because it's the right time. But that's because we've planned it in as adults. Although the students know we need to make really put more onus on the pupils to do that more because it develops their independence moving forwards. Jack, we're coming towards the end of this podcast episode, but I've got oh, a last question. I'm, I'm looking for a brief answer on this, if you could, because parents sometimes see their children getting a bit stressed about you know, upcoming exams. How can a young person try not to be overly stressed or what could a parent do to help uh, prevent their child getting stressed about an exam that's coming up? The, so encourage students should be encouraged to support each other because you know, they're all on their own journey. They're all, you know, it's... It's pointless comparing yourselves with with other people. It just really is because you are you are on your own path. You know you've got your your own things that you may be particularly good at and so on. But so the first thing I would say is you know don't compare yourself with others. And I would say plan really really early. So I advocate because honestly this is this is the best way. All you do is you look at when your exam is, and you work backwards. You make your revision timetable. And you can, students are always surprised by how few lessons they, or how few, you know, days they have before their actual exam. Once they plan it out and look at all of their subjects, they see then, oh, actually, I've only got so many weeks or so many days or whatever that I can allocate to this particular subject. Hmm. And because the exam, what we're trying to do is when the student goes to the exam, it's their opportunity. It's not something to be afraid of. Hmm. It's an opportunity for them to demonstrate how great they are or the work that. they've done mm. and that it's yeah it's they're ready then it's not about being fearful anymore because honestly if you plan if if you plan early and as they say you know fail to plan plan to fail if you mm. plan early then you will succeed and you'll be able to develop sorry you know convey your potential in that exam because the, 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 I've just got to say it's the last thing I've got to say it's so important I've taught for 20 years and in my experience, whilst natural innate ability does have some bearing on outcomes, in my experience, the outcomes or the attainment is based on the tenacity, the grit, the determination, the work ethic of the students and you know the planning and so on. And, and that, it really is, it really, really is the key. So that, if I was to say anything about relieving stress, plan early and know that you can do this. It's all just about... 
uh, you know, putting the work in at the right time and, and having a sense of perspective. Jack, I love that. I love that reframing of, of an exam not being a, f- a time of fear, but a time of opportunity. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Last question, where could people go to find out more about this or where could they find out more about space practice and these techniques that you mentioned? Okay, well, um, space practice. If they just search space practice on Google, obviously we have all, all we've created lots of resources at the Queen's School here, and we refer to those on the Queen's School website. But some of them are on the VLE, which which obviously uh, is only available to the students here. But if they if they go onto onto the onto the Google, they'll see that there's lots and lots of literature on space practice, retrieval practice, and so on, because. These are really effective tools that students can use to alleviate stress and make sure the time they spend revising is impactful, which means they can do other things such as see their friends, do their sports and so on. Jack, thank you for being here. I I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the passion that you bring to this subject of of, of teaching and learning. And uh, I can absolutely see why you're doing that job. And just to go back to your earlier point, I don't think that's down to luck at all. I absolutely believe that's down to merit. So thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Been lovely. So that was Head of Teaching and Learning, Jack Sheldrake, giving out some advice for students preparing for their exams. Thank you, Jack, for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It was great to hear some of your revision techniques. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.